Trauma Network. Today, because May is Foster Care Month, is a great time for the conversation that Ginger and Julie are having with Jane Samuel, a therapist who frequently works with children in foster care and those who have experienced adoption and their caregivers. Jane will be talking with us today about the use of stories, storytelling, and narratives to give special windows into healing for many of our children. Let's join the conversation. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Regulated and Relational, our podcast produced by the Attachment and Trauma Network. I'm Ginger Healy. And I'm Julie Beam. And we're so excited to share with you from both our personal experiences and our professional knowledge, what it truly means to be attachment-focused and trauma-informed, and how we can help children impacted by early childhood trauma. Today, if you're an adoptive parent or a therapist or clinician who works with adoptive families, we have a guest for you. We're talking to a dear friend and a longtime ATNer, Jane Samuel. Welcome, Jane. Great to be here. Jane is a psychotherapist and author based out of Kentucky. In her therapy work, she values caregiver collaboration, psychoeducation, and the healing power of relational play. Jane operates from a strength-based perspective, incorporating the science of trauma, attachment, and polyvagal theory into her work. She's a certified TheraPlay practitioner at the foundational level and is trained in DDP, EFFT, TFCBT, and narrative work. Jane has a keen interest in family communications, both verbal and nonverbal, and has conducted research in the area of family communication, specifically how families do or don't communicate about adoption. This research, along with prior experience using storytelling in raising her own children, has led her to advocate for increased family communications on many topics our culture tends to shy away from, including feelings, death, divorce, foster care adoption, addiction, sex, and suicide. In her practice, she utilizes bibliotherapy and storytelling to assist clients in grief and trauma work. She has written and spoken widely on parenting in general and adoptive and foster caregiving more specifically. Her work has appeared in various publications, including the Singapore American Newspaper, Adoption Today Magazine, the Lexington Herald Leader, and several motherhood and adoption anthologies. She is the founding editor of ATN's Therapeutic Parenting Journal. Jane and her husband are the parents of three children, two biological and one adoptive. We're so glad to have you here, friend. We are. And today, I think we're going to kind of focus on narratives and stories and how we can use them in helping children to heal I'm hoping that we have the chance to talk about how parents and educators can use them for themselves too. There's just a lot of different ways we can go, but where I want to start, Jane, is if you'll kind of maybe define for us what we're talking about, what are narratives and stories and how can we use them? So there's everything from this clinical definition that you especially hear in a lot of the trauma circles, Dan Siegel and Bessel van der Kolk and Bruce Perry talk about a coherent autobiographical narrative and helping a client or a child develop that and make sense of you know, what they've experienced across time and so that it becomes coherent for them, not just that they have this biography of themselves, but that or this autobiography, but that it's a coherent narrative and it makes sense. But it also encompasses 
things like a story we might share with our children about what we did on certain holidays. So ritual storytelling, or when I was growing up and began swim lessons or music lessons, I was really scared too. And sharing those experiences that we had, you know, we're often get asked when our kids are younger, you know, can you tell me a story about when you were little? So those kind of stories. It's also includes reading stories to children or telling stories with animals or play. When we're playing with figurines, when I think of all the hours I played like Playmobil with my one daughter and we'd have the train track and we'd have the Santa Claus come in and rescue, you know, that to me is storytelling. So we have the narrative and we have the story and we have the storytelling. We have the story of our children's lives before they came to us, if they're adoptive or foster or a kinship placement. We have the story in our own heads because we're meaning making people. So what are we telling ourselves in this moment? I remember hearing Dr. Kurt Thompson speak at a conference and he said, we're the only mammal that narrates our lives. And I remember going home and being in the pool the next day and swimming and thinking, wow, V isn't right. Here I am doing laps, telling myself, I was in an adult swim program, that the coach is looking at me and saying, she's not trying hard enough. And so that's <laughs> one story in my head. And another story in my head is I'm trying the best I can, you know? So that's a story. And that's that narrative that we're forming about ourselves. So I think it encompasses so much. When we're talking about adoptive and foster children, I want to really remember that when we're talking about narrative and story, we're talking about across the triad. So the birth parent has their story of their experiences. The adoptive child or the foster child has their story and their experiences. The adoptive parent or the foster parent or the caregiver has their stories. And often in our culture, although I think things are slowly shifting, we really didn't focus on the birth parent at all. And we tried to avoid the adoptive child because there was too much pain there. And actually way back, and, and I do think this occurs still even today, we avoided the adoptive parents. Because unless we are adopting for some altruistic reason, there might have been pain there, there might have been infertility. And so we don't want to necessarily talk about that. And those were things that I became aware of when I was doing my research. There are so many stories across this triad. So I just want to honor that specific piece when I talk about narratives and stories. I think it's really important because you just said that our culture does not want to acknowledge a lot of stories that have a lot of pain to them. And yet it's like acknowledging painful stories is so important. And if we think about the stories that we see in our culture, the movies, the books, the things that many of us enjoy, they all have pain in them, right? They all have hardship. They all have trauma pieces to them. And so it doesn't come as a surprise if we really reflect that stories can actually be healing pieces as well. Yes. And that reminds me of something I was listening to the other day by Eugene Peterson, an author. 
he happened to be interviewed, but he's written many books, but his main book that a lot of people know him for is he was the author of The Message, which is a translation of the Bible. And he said in there, just in speaking about both, Julie, what you were talking about, feelings, but also how they can be approached. He said, if we can bring out fears, hates, or discomfort and bring them to a secure place that we can share those, that it's less dangerous. Those things are less dangerous to us and also as something in the world. So we think about the adoptive child, you know, if they're able to eventually explore that with a secure base, with a parent or a caregiver, some of the hurts they've been through, then that's going to be less impactful on them. It's going to be less activating to them. And then he goes on to say, this is where art plays a role because the artist can bring out these things in us that we can't do on our own. And I loved that as a writer and also as a absolute lover of children's books and even books I read as an adult strike me and I make sense of some things in my life because that's what they're doing for us. So mm-hmm. giving us a chance maybe to explore some things that are hard. You know, and an example I would use even for myself as an adult is when I was caring for my parents when they were elderly, I read the book Bettyville, which I highly recommend, by the way. It's just a humorous book. I unfortunately can't think of the name of the author. It's a true story. And he goes home to a small town. I think it's in Tennessee, somewhere in the South, to care for his mother. And he writes well. He's very humorous. That book, reading that book, listening to that book on my walks, just normalized for me, validated so much of what I was going through. And there's other books on various topics, everything from cancer to divorce to just the full gamut. And here we do this as adults. I'm sure you all can share books that you've read that you've been like, oh, this was like a bomb to my soul right now. Mm -hmm. Or this made me think about something that I hadn't really finished dealing with. I think you had talked about that it normalizes things, that feeling of not being alone, you know, in whatever you're going through, that's, boy, that is so powerful. And I think especially for children, because they look to us as adults for cues and, mm-hmm. and so they can find it in that way too. I had an experience recently with my son, my youngest son, he's kind of a tough nut to crack. Meaning, you know, me as a mom, I'm always like, Hey bud, how was your day? Talk to me, you know, connect with me. I just want that and yearn for that. But he's kind of learning to be more independent. He wants to grow up way faster than I'm ready for. And so that's always been like a, you know, a strain for me to let him go. And he came home one day and said, mom, we read this book in school and I can't quit thinking about it. And so Mm. I had tell me about it. And then he said, would you read it so that we can talk about it? And I'm like, yes, <laughs> you know, what an invitation that was. And I did read it and it blew my mind. I think that this teacher was brilliant in finding this book and understanding that this group of fifth graders could handle this difficult subject So I read it. And then every night we kind of would crawl into bed. And I said, this is the chapter I read today. And anyway, it was such a, just a beautiful thing for him and I to connect over that we wouldn't have had, we not had that book to do that because 
he's just not going to tell me, Hey mom, how you doing? This is how I feel today. Mm -hmm. That's not intuitive to him or comfortable to him. But if we can do it in a way that's like, so non-threatening, you know, yeah, Um, especially where he is developmentally. Yes. Because, you know, he's remind me about how so he's, you know, he's starting to move up into those ages where he's trying to figure some things out, maybe, you know, starting to work on separating. And, you know, the book gave you that experience. I think we have to remember that, yes, this podcast is for parents and therapists who are working with children with histories of adversity, children with histories of placement out of the home, adoptive and foster children, children with histories of even trauma. But in this situation, you're just talking about the fact that you could connect over a book that you weren't trying to use to make a moral message or anything like that. In the courses that I've taken for writing children's books, you know, one of the things that the instructor is very clear on is, you know, children don't like to be preached to. So there are beautiful moral messages. There are beautiful messages in books, but they're not coming out in a preachy way. And I love the fact that you shared a story that wasn't necessarily about, well, I found this really great book and promoted a message to my son that I'd been wanting him to get for a couple of years. No, your story was so much about, wow, this is an opportunity for me to share something with him, see where he's at, which gets me to a really important point about stories, storytelling and narratives is those can't exist without a listener. And Mm -hmm. so it is really important whether we're working with ourselves intrapersonally, meaning within ourselves checking in with the parts of ourselves that are showing up, the feelings that are showing up and being mindful to ourselves and listening to what we need. But also that story, that narrative cannot, that co-creation cannot exist between the adult and the child if we're not showing up with a listening self. And one of the things that I know is touched on in lots of different Areas, for example, let's think about trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy has components about working with parents on their own emotional regulation so that they can hear their child tell their narrative back Mm -hmm. of a horrible car accident they were in or the day their dad died of cancer or whatever the trauma is that they're working on. But also being present just for our children in their feelings and thoughts and body language about how they feel about being a foster child or how they feel about being an adoptive child or how they feel about having gone through the significant adversity of emigrating to this country from another country that was war-torn. So before we show up with all our moral books and our messages that we're trying to have them learn so that they can succeed in life. We have to show up with our regulated self and work on that relationship. And that's what you were doing in that moment. Fantastic example of doing that. And it's hard for us as caregivers, right? We don't want our children to be in pain. And some of our children that have come to us through adoption or foster care or kinship have come from immense amounts of pain. But Mm -hmm. us not listening to it or not acknowledging it doesn't lessen that at all. Absolutely. I tell the parents I work with that smoothing over your child's feelings 
or disagreeing with your child's feelings and saying, now, now, wait a minute, that's not true. All that is saying to the child is maybe my feelings not correct or, huh, my parent can't really hear this feeling or, ooh, this is a taboo subject. I shouldn't bring this up. And one thing that ties in with this is when I was doing my research, one of the things that I learned from the prior researchers that I really wanted to pay attention to was both the nonverbal and the verbal in the story, in the communication. Mm-hmm. What is going on that that child is showing you nonverbally and what is going on that that child is showing you verbally? What's going on for us? What are we showing non-verbally and what are we showing verbally? So a child wants to talk about the horrible day that the shooting occurred at their school and our shoulders go up Mm. and we maybe grip the steering wheel a little tighter. The child is picking up on all of that. And it's a matter of paying attention to our non-verbal cues and not just what's coming out of our mouth, but it's part of paying attention to the child. Oh, I noticed that when I sit beside my child and read this book, the conversation opens up and we seem to be able to go some places that we can't go when I sit him down at the table and we're having a snack. And I say, hey, do you ever think about your birth parent? And the defenses come up. I think that that's one of the powerful ways that we can use stories. Can we switch a little bit for a moment mm-hmm. and have you talk about how therapists and clinicians use, just sort of give us an overview of the way that you use or the way that therapists who are working with children and families can use stories and narratives. So in clinical work, you'll see it show up in in various ways. I mentioned trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy, which some children may be exposed to. One of the things about That type of work, however, is when you look at the treatment ladder or the, I'm thinking of specifically of Kim Golding's treatment triangle, the pyramid of need, she has that higher up because first of all, that's cognitive work, where are they Mm -hmm. developmentally, but also when I say higher up, she has that later in the process because we're really working on relationship. We're really working down at the bottom with building that safe, secure feeling so that they can then start to do that work. I just always want to point that out as a therapist, because we can't, especially with some of the children that we're working with in our schools and in our offices, we can't always just leap right into trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy. But Mm -hmm. trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy has this element of sharing a narrative or several narratives of the adversity or trauma that the child experienced. And that's where I talked about the parent being able to hear it, The therapist works with the child, sometimes without the parent in the room, to develop that narrative. There are positive things about that narrative, like what would you like people to know about you? But there are also the hard things that maybe have been shied away from, haven't been explored. And then being able to then share that narrative. That's one place it shows up, but where it tends to show up in my work, because I'm working with children who have such significant histories of adversity and trauma, and I'm working lower on that treatment ladder, building the safety, the security, using relational play like TheraPlay. It's showing up in things like rhythmic stories that we read while the child is maybe being fed a snack by their caregiver or their parent. But also 
with children that I've been working with long enough, we start to explore some difficult topics that they've not been able to and cannot. They are vehemently opposed to bringing that up in session because of some of the ways that their neglect and trauma has impacted their development or where they are developmentally and their ability to reflect and their ability to think and feel at the same time and their ability to have their feelings. These are things that Deborah Bray talks about and also notice the other's feeling. And so I might read a book that touches on the experience. I'm thinking of one particular book, Maybe Days, is a book about foster care. And it's a beautiful book because it doesn't paint anything glowingly, but it doesn't paint anything as totally dire either. It just has lots of different, you know, I'm thinking of one page where it says some foster children call their foster parents, mom and dad, foster children don't want to call them anything at all, you know, or something like that. And so it's showing that full experience. And I've had children pipe up during that book or other books I can think of that really touch on their experience and even some of their coping mechanisms that some clinicians might use the word maladaptive coping, but the things they've had to do, the lying, the building a wall, the stealing, the not showing any feelings. There are some great books out there, and I'm hoping there'll be more where you really are exploring the different ways that these children show up and also the sharing of some of the things that they may have experienced. And I just see these children, this light bulb goes off and they're like, whoa, everything from other kids have this happen to, do you have other foster kids here that you work with? You know, and this is in a therapeutic foster care program Mm -hmm. (laughs) where all the kids Mm -hmm. are in foster care and they're just in their own little tunnel and don't see that. It's almost as if I see their shoulders drop and they just Mm -hmm. relax into the pillow more beside their caregiver almost gives them permission. I'm not saying we have to give them permission to lie and steal. It helps them make sense of why they were doing that, why they still are. Gives them an example of another human being who's doing it. So there's a normalization there that I know I don't have to carry the secret and the shame anymore. I can go ahead and say that character in that story is not the only one. Exactly. And I've used those books with parents and caregivers before I've even shown them to the child, because I think they carry so much weight. Here's this simple picture book, which is two sentences on each page. And it captures right there, the entire experience of this child that they have in their home, that they've been trying to make sense of, or the child they have in their classroom that they've been trying to make sense of. Mm -hmm. Imagine the experience If an auditorium of teachers, if someone stood up and read The Boy Who Built a Wall by Allie Redford Mm -hmm. or Riley the Brave Mm -hmm. by Jessica Sinarski, so window into their world. Yeah, it would really help caregivers and teachers, anyone shift that paradigm. I've been there where you're just frustrated and things aren't working and we're just kind of looking at it through this narrow, you know, window, but to open it up and to have that reminder that things aren't always what they seem, you know, it's, and so powerful for the child to know that they aren't alone. Ginger, you make a beautiful point because I think some of the best 
books that I've read from clinicians over the years have been ones that have shared not just case studies, but have shared stories. Mm -hmm. And I think of Daniel Hughes, Building the Bonds of Attachment, where he tells it in a story format. The way he approaches that with incorporating the story of a young clinical social worker working with a foster parent and a foster child and what that clinical social worker learns from that very experienced foster parent, even more so than learns from the therapist character in the book. But I think of my own paradigm shift when I was reading Greg Keck and Regina Kupecki's book, I think it was Parenting the Hurt Child, because I think I read that before Adopting the Hurt Child. And if I'm not mistaken, it is in, and I think it was toward the back of the book, and this is years ago, 15, 16 years ago, I read the story that he shares in there of the boy who went into the deli in either Chicago or some city where you'd find a great European, Eastern European deli, maybe a Jewish deli, and the child falls on the floor in a fetal position. I can't recall if he describes him crying in there because of being activated by the smells Mm -hmm. Um, and maybe even the taste, maybe someone offered him a little piece of something, a salami or something. All of a sudden, I just had such a different perspective. And that was because it wasn't right there in that book. It wasn't leading me through like, well, this happens in the brain and then this happens, which is all important. And I love being a researcher and being a former attorney who also researched. I love that. But it was the story. It was the humanity of that story that shifted it for me. That's so powerful. Well, I think it's the reason that Dr. Perry and Oprah's book is reaching far into public to where it hasn't before is that the meld of that science with the stories, with the vignettes of the stories and examples is so powerful for that very same reason. It's like, okay, now not only do I know it in my thinking brain, but I'm feeling it in my humanity. Right. And also, if we think about that, was our experience when we read certain things like what I read or what, you know, in Oprah and Bruce's book, do we feel like we're being preached at or do we feel like we're listening to a story Mm -hmm. of someone's experience? And it's easier to remember. There's just a certain part of our brain that can digest it in a different way. I was also thinking about, as you were talking with our own son that was adopted, how important, like, we were taught by the adoption agency and I've grown to understand more why they so much encourage adoptive parents to help the child create a life book. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, helping them make sense and reflect upon their own story and where they have come from and just to kind of pull things together and give it a tangible form, you know, Mm -hmm. to look at and touch and talk about. So let's talk about that for a minute because It kind of reminds me of something I did want to mention earlier when we were talking about the different ways that stories and narratives may show up in therapeutic work. Life books can take so many different paths. And I've actually seen life books be criticized. And I would definitely say this was the case back when I was adopting. I think things were just starting to kind of shift, but still this idea of oh, it's just all beautiful. It's just all rosy. And some dangers that were pointed out by the original developer of of life books 
their life doesn't start from the day they arrive in our home. So the life book isn't them coming home from the airport or us picking them up at the hospital. That's not when it starts. Their life started way back, even in utero Mm -hmm. and just acknowledging all of that. But also this piece of it being all rosy. So Mm -hmm. I remember the first life book I worked on for my daughter was somewhat rosy. I had some inkling because of some of the books that I had chosen at the time to just bite the bullet and read, even though other folks that I knew were saying, oh, well, that book is so upsetting, or that's not going to be the case with our children. And, And one particular book that was controversial was 20 Things Adoptive Kids Wish Their Adoptive Parents Knew. I knew to be careful, but I still made it rosier than I should have because I didn't want my child to feel pain. I wanted them to know how much they were wanted. And a few years later, I rewrote that life book, having now been through some additional training and the life book was very factual. There was no writing in things that I did not know for a fact. So the director of your orphanage really enjoyed caring for all the children. You know, no, I didn't put that on there because I don't know that, you know, not that I'm saying that was even in the original one I wrote, but still, when I look back on those two books and compare them, I'm blown away by how this book is not bleak, but it is honest. I also wrote a book for when we traveled back to my daughter's country of origin, because that was something that was kind of recommended both by her occupational therapist to kind of give her the visuals that she would need to kind of sequence things, but also because of where she was developmentally, but also to kind of prepare her and also her siblings. And in there, I put in things like, I may not on the day that we go to see the orphanage, I may decide I don't want to, and that's okay. You know, or I probably will have lots of different feelings about going to the country where I was born. All those feelings are welcome. That's so good. Along those lines, I want to touch on some work that I was exposed to first, just as a parent trying to look for things when my child was young that informed what I did with my life books and also informed just how I approached conversations with my child. And then ultimately what I knew I wanted to include in my work with children as a clinician. And that was the work of Denise Latcher, Todd Nichols, and Joanne May, who developed family attachment narrative therapy. And in their original book, you know, they had five forms of stories that parents would tell. And I love their book because, and it's been updated. It brings actual examples of stories that you can tell with your child And keeping things at a little bit of a distance until the child, you know, maybe can handle them. So telling them from the point of view of an animal or a story of some other individuals that have different names. But I think of The Boy Who Built the Wall, that book is kind of like a later version of some of the stories that maybe those clinicians would have helped parents develop and then tell to their child. So do you remember how I told you in in trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy, we're helping the child face their trauma and develop their narrative and then share it back to their caregiver in a secure place, a sense of 
I'm listening. I'm here for you. I'm not trying to talk you out of your feelings or give you advice how to change. Well, this book is the opposite in the sense that it takes the parents and works with the parents and the information the parents have to develop stories that then can be shared with the child to help the child make sense. And so a current example might be the boy who built a wall, but that might've been a story that a parent just comes up with on their own about maybe a little animal who's lost in the woods. Maybe it's a turtle and they're far from their family. And what are all the feelings that they're doing? And what are their behaviors? They're pulling inside their shell, or maybe they're standing up and fighting because they're really scared. And then another family shows up and says, well, we can take you in. But interestingly, that family doesn't just say, oh, you're fine. You don't need to worry anymore. You don't need to go inside your shell. The family just notices what's going on for the little scared animal and accepts and empathizes with all of that. You know, it gets to this whole idea of like, sometimes as parents or caregivers or teachers, that we get in the way because we have our own narrative running through our own head. We have our own issues, our own histories. And so sometimes we shy away from a certain subject or we insert something that doesn't necessarily need to be there. We hijack that space. You know, you had mentioned to me, and I thought it was a very powerful phrase. What are the ghosts? in our own nurseries. Mm -hmm. And I really wanted to explore that because I found that to be a really powerful visual that popped into my head when you said that. And I can't take credit for that. That's a beautiful phrase. And I think it's the name of a book, but it's also a phrase that's been used before to explore. I think it was even the title of an article in in our journal at one point that Mm -hmm. I edited. But you're right. It is a great visual. You think of all those things that are hovering in the background, all the messages, you know, my own personal experience of that, just one little vignette is when my own child was really missing her birth parent and she was maybe three and a half. And that just unnerved my mother because she was raised in a generation in an entirely different home. She did not have experience as an adoptive parent. But she also had a lot of experience with trauma in her own family of loss, grief, death that hadn't been allowed to be explored because her own caregivers really couldn't do that because of their own cultural messages Mm -hmm. and family rules that they learned. And I remember being very intentional about the fact that I wanted my daughter to know that those feelings were all okay and appropriate. And I remember my own mother, when she would visit us and my child would exhibit some of those feelings, my mother would want to fix it just like she did when we were kids. And so out came the advice or why is she feeling that way? Or just tell her that she's got a great family now. Those voices showed up in my head the first day that my child ever really grieved for her, which she said, Mm -hmm. those other parents she was very young. She ran upstairs crying on her birthday, right after she'd blown the candles out on her cake. And I sat beside her on the bed and she blurted out just a few words of, I miss that other parent or that other mother or something like that. That was the first time I'd ever heard that. And darned if I didn't hear in my own head, you know, tell her it's okay. She doesn't have to be sad. She has a mom now, you know, all of these things. I just, 
had to push those mm-hmm. and calm that part of myself showing up or turn down those old messages, whatever model you, therapy you might be exposed to that uses different parts or voices or messages lingo. And I had to just say to my child, it's really sad, isn't it? It's really sad not being near that mom. I'm here to say that took a lot. It took a lot to be mindful that those things were showing up in my head, that they were wanting to come out my mouth, Mm -hmm. that they were causing my muscles to tighten and my anxiety to go up. And so that's what I'm talking about when I say we need to have a relationship with our own internal self. Why might it be difficult for us when our child says, do you have a picture of my birth bomb Mm -hmm. or why it might be difficult if our child doesn't, you know, so let's talk about the times when our child doesn't want to talk and we want to talk and we have the story in our head at that time, maybe the ghost in, in our head is, is saying, oh, but you have to get them to do this work or they're going to be traumatized their whole life, you know? And so being mindful of that. And checking in with that and saying, oh, okay, okay. Are we going zero to 60 here, mom? Is that really what's going to happen? Can I calm myself? Clearly my child needs to take this slowly, but we do need to do this work. How can I help my child do this? Is it maybe, like we talked about, Ginger, is it maybe through a book that we get from the library, Mr. Rogers book, you know, how to talk about adoption, which just tells it, simply. It's not sugarcoating it. It just tells it simply. And just even exploring that. So our child starts to realize, oh, there are other kids who are adopted. But even on a grander scale, something like sharing with our child who's in middle school or upper elementary for Black girls like me, her middle grade book about growing up a black child in an adoptive white family. And Julie, we've discussed before being brave enough to do some of this. Oh gosh, if she reads that book, she'll hate me. She reads that book, what will happen? So maybe reading that book first ourselves and checking in with all our feelings about the book and being honest with ourselves. Is there something about this book that's scaring me? that I'm afraid how my child might feel if they read this. And these are things that we face in other areas of parenting. What will happen if my child sees that movie? I remember the day my daughter came home from school crying because they had read The Bridge to Terabithia. And there was a part of me that showed up that just wanted to, to save her from all that. Oh my gosh, why did they read that at school? You know, but that was a rite of passage, you know, in her school. All kids read that in that grade, you know, her sibling read it. We have to get out of the way. That's the point is that a lot of times for me, the fear was about, there was a measure of how much my daughter would be hurting. But the Mm -hmm. truth is she was hurting and in pain from her adversities, not from any story about somebody who'd had adversities. But a lot of it was about me, about where my fears were, where my insecurities were. What is she going to think about us and our relationship? And if we talk about the hard things, we talk about the birth mom, if we talk about the loss and the pain, if we talk about her big feelings about why she had to endure that, you know, what's that going to do to me? And so when I really peeled back the layers, that was a lot of what it was. You know, you need to examine that and figure out what you need to do for yourself. 
I'm not saying that we don't have some boundaries in our homes to what comes into our home. I'm not saying that, but not being afraid of everything. We cannot prevent our children from feeling hard feelings. We can't. It's not good for them to experience that anyway, because that's not life. I often share this with the adult clients I work with and some of the kids, but life is not this trajectory where we start at the bottom and we're just working our way up this mountain to get to the top where there's a big word and it's happiness. That's not life. Life is waves up and down the waves, right? Just like if we think about the window of tolerance, right? We're not supposed to just stay neutral in the window of tolerance, right? right. We don't, don't just in stay in ventral vagal. Yeah. <laughs> we don't. And yeah. learning how to handle and modulate and deal with what comes our way and then finding greater appreciation in the good times because we have survived and right. coped with struggles in the bad times. I look at my kids and they have this sense of, okay, I handled this before. So now I know I can handle it again, or Mm -hmm. I survived. From Brene Brown's work, it's brave to be vulnerable and authentic, right? You know, I mean, our children have those adversities. If they've come to us with the adversities, they have them, they have feelings about them. You know, they need healthy ways to process them and to work with them. And us being examples of being open and vulnerable to be able to help them walk through that, you know, helps them get to their own brave selves. We all have to do that. It doesn't necessarily have anything to do with adoption or even trauma and adversities. Life is about that. Life is about mm-hmm. learning how to, you know, step into your own authenticity, right? And that then enables others. And I know before we hit the record button, you were talking about some children's stories where the characters, they were animal characters, we'll definitely hook those in the show notes along with others, had actually walked alongside other animal characters in Mm -hmm. that authentic seeing and hearing the other person. And that's so powerful. In some of the courses I've taken on writing children's books, we've talked about the layers that exist in children's books. Do you ever notice that, that you're mm-hmm. reading a book with your young child or hearkening back to when your children were young and you notice, oh, this is for me. You know, how many times did you watch a Christmas special or watch Arthur mm-hmm. and you're sitting there, you know, hail to Arthur, who's, you know, had a beautiful career and is going off the air that it was as much for the parent or the caregiver as it was for the child. Mr. Rogers was the same way. Oh my gosh. The fact that that man did an entire week on what assassination was and everything. Why? Because he knew the children were talking about the death of president Kennedy. He knew they were being exposed to that. And that was a generation when there was even more of, well, we can't talk about that in the book, the grumpy monkey or in the book rabbit listened. Mm-hmm. In both those books, I see different layers. Some people have interpreted The Grumpy Monkey as a book where a monkey is grumpy. He can't really acknowledge he's grumpy and everyone's coming in, pointing out what he's doing that's showing him he's grumpy and giving him ways to get ungrumpy. And he just doesn't want any part of it. Okay. Because I'm saying that person mm-hmm. is in that survival mode. Right. right. And so they're like, I'm, I'm over here. I don't use rational and logical thought with me. That's all high brain. I'm down here in my low brain. And then he encounters someone else in their low brain, a gorilla. 
And so the grumpy monkey and the gorilla get to just sit beside each other on a branch and be grumpy together for a moment and just Mm -hmm. listen. And one in the end has his arm around the other. Very similarly in the book, Rabbit Listened is a child who builds this beautiful creation. And I can't remember how, but it comes crashing down. I think a band of monkeys or somebody comes into the room. Everyone shows up to tell that child how to get over it, how to rebuild it, how to feel better. And a rabbit shows up and the rabbit just listens. And the rabbit listens to the child being sad and the rabbit listens to the child being mad about it. And it's just beautiful. Talk about attunement. Talk about regulated and relational And that's it. That's the key is that if there's a story, we have to listen, right? That there has to be a listener. And if you can be that listener for your child, then, you know, that's where a lot of that healing can happen. And there are so many good books on so many different topics out there. I love the fact that we can now just, we don't have to necessarily buy it from them, but we can Google some websites, some major booksellers and just look and see, and then go check it out at the library but I often find books that I need by just typing in the feeling that I'm trying to work with a child wow. on or the experience. Mm-hmm. For the listeners, so you know, we are going to put a list of some of Jane's favorite books in our show notes for you to all check out. And we're definitely going to make sure that those show up in ATN's bookstore so that they're easy for you to find as well. Jane, we could talk about this forever. There are lots of different models that I draw from in my therapy work. I don't just sit and read books with children. Some therapists do that and then they digest and process. But this is a key piece that has been very helpful in my work with children who really cannot even put words. And if we think about our children who've experienced Mm pre-verbal adversity, they're not going to be able to sit down and say, well, on this day, the police car came and my mother was passed out on the floor. They're not going to be able to do that because they don't have that verbal memory. Reading a book about a child who experienced something similar might be a window into them feeling more normal, feeling Mm -hmm. more understood, feeling more heard. Exactly. We can't thank you enough for, for coming and sharing this with us, as we said earlier, or at least alluded to, Jane has been a longtime member and contributor and volunteer of the Attachment and Trauma Network, was on our board for a significant portion of time and edited and wrote for our journal, and then turned her career towards being a therapist, which is incredible. And we're so happy. Well, we're happy to know you and happy to make sure that other people know about you and about the work that you're doing, because it's fantastic. Thank you both. Thanks, Ginger. Thanks, Julie. And thank you. We'll catch you all next time. This has been another episode of Regulated and Relational. Join us next time when our host, Ginger and Julie, are joined by the transformative principal, Jethro Jones, to talk about the challenges of our children's use of social media, especially at puberty. A special thanks to Lorraine Schneider, our editor, and Joe Kramer for donating our music. For more information about the Attachment and Trauma Network, visit our website at www.attachedtrauma.org. Show notes and upcoming episodes will be available on our website and through Anchor.fm. I'm Christopher Schneider. 